This week on the Northwest Politicast. The president delivers his second State of the Union. My administration has cut the deficit by more than $1.7 trillion. The largest deficit reduction in American history. But the dissenters made their voices heard. That means Congress doesn't vote. Glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. We'll get reaction from some of our local representatives. Plus, campaign 2024 is already heating up, but if Republicans turn their backs on Donald Trump. A lot of Republicans think he is kind of over the hill, that they want a fresh face to represent their party. Not to mention that both Mr. Trump and his former vice president remained embroiled in scandal. This is attorney now saying agents did find one document with classified markings and six additional pages without such markings. The search, which happened with Pence's consent, came less than a month after his attorneys discovered about a dozen classified documents in his home office. And state lawmakers moved to reduce the cost of insulin. To make insulin free and available to children under 21 and to figure out what the potential cost to the state might be for making that available. Now, reporting from Seattle, Jeff Pojola. President Biden delivered his second State of the Union address this past week. And by all accounts, it was a far better speech than any Mr. Biden has given in the past. But that's the question of style. What about substance? Certainly, there are plenty of things Republicans will disagree with, as was outlined by former Trump spokeswoman and current Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But let's get some local reaction from Washington lawmakers. On the night of the speech, Northwest News Radio's Kelly Blyer spoke with Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Seattle. The president just knocked it out of the park. I think it was an incredible speech. He talked about so much of the work that we have gotten done in the last two years under his leadership and with Democrats in Congress. But he also laid out a vision, an inspiring and hopeful vision of what it takes to finish the job, as he said. Um, things like universal child care, making sure that we're investing in housing, taking on police accountability, you know, making sure we codify abortion rights. I just thought it was an incredible speech. He had so much energy um, and so much commitment, so much passion to really making America a place that we can be proud of, that we can have opportunity for every single person um, across the country. And I think that was just beautiful. What did you think of the reaction from the, uh, at times, the other party? Well, you know, I was disappointed um, to see that they didn't stand up for many things that should be bipartisan. They did not stand up uh, when the president talked about um, snuffing out hate and extremism of every kind. They didn't stand up when we were talking about, um, you know, our children um, and keeping our, our kids safe. They didn't stand up at so many moments during the speech. And I understand that there are some things that are partisan. Certainly our side doesn't stand up for everything during a speech, but there were some critical things that are about the fundamental values of our democracy, our constitution, that I thought they would all stand up for. But more than that, there were a few members that did not show the president the respect that he deserves. And um, that's unfortunate, but the president was presidential. He was not swayed by that. He, um, He really represents progress and stability versus the chaos that we often see from our colleagues across the aisle. And I saw as he was leaving the chamber, you were one of the first people he shook hands with and he leaned in and said something. Can you can you say what what he said? He did. Let's just say that we have a mutual admiration uh, club 
Um, he, he, I think he's been doing a great job. I told him that. He said some very lovely things as well. Realistically, what do you think can get done? I mean, like I said, the Congress is divided now, and Kevin McCarthy was sitting behind Joe Biden tonight, and so these are politically divided times. What do you think can get done in the next two years? Well, you know, we're going to have to lift the debt ceiling. Um, otherwise, the government will default on our bills, and that is something that Democrats joined with Republicans to lift the debt ceiling. Uh, When Donald Trump was president, um, the Republicans should do that now. We're also going to have to pass appropriations bills because we need to fund the, we need to continue to fund the government. We need to fund uh, critical services that people rely on every day. And so we will have to get to that soon. Um, But I'm hoping that there's a few other places that we can do some work together. I think the president talked today about antitrust. This is actually a place where, as the vice chair of the Antitrust Subcommittee, we passed in a bipartisan manner six bills, a package of bills taking on big tech and big monopolies. And I think we have a shot of getting that done. Um, I also hope that we can do something on immigration. You know, there are a few Republicans who understand that we should pass some common sense immigration reforms and allow our immigration system to be humane and fair again and welcome people back into the country. And so as the ranking, new ranking member of the Immigration Subcommittee, I am hoping we can get just a few things done on immigration, even if we can't get the whole thing done. It's time for us to make progress. That's Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal speaking with our Kelly Blyer. Now, in the interest of balance, we reached out to Washington's two Republican members of Congress, Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Dan Newhouse, to get their thoughts on the speech. We did not hear back from McMorris-Rogers. We had an interview scheduled with Dan Newhouse, but were unable to reach him. We hope to have both on the show in the coming weeks. Still to come. Medicare was certainly the most contentious issue the president spoke about on Tuesday night as he accused some in the Republican Party of wanting to gut the program. But what exactly is the party's intent? When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, Democrats and Republicans continue to spar over something President Joe Biden said in his State of the Union address. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Republican Representative Mike Lawler of New York calls that disingenuous. Implying that Republicans were going to cut Social Security and Medicare when so many of us, including the Speaker, are on record saying we're not. So with the 2024 presidential primaries getting ever closer, what are the intentions of some of these lawmakers regarding Social Security and Medicare? Isaac Arnsdorf has been sorting through all of that with the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Isaac, President Biden said it wasn't a majority of Republicans, but from your investigating, how many 2024 hopefuls are willing to cut these programs? Well, you have to remember that a lot of these candidates grew up in the Tea Party wave and going back to the previous fight over the debt ceiling 10, 11, 12 years ago, a lot of these politicians at that time were making comments about needing to take a look at entitlement reform and doing something about costs in Medicare or Social Security. And it's sort of emblematic of how much the party has changed under Trump that he came in in 2016 and was emphasizing in that campaign breaking from that conservative orthodoxy. And he's now looking to use that against the people who want to challenge him for the primary 
now. And one of those other uh, folks that hopes to do that kind of challenging, we, we believe, is Ron DeSantis, one of the other major figures looming over the field. Uh, how does Governor DeSantis's opinion differ or jive with the former president? So we don't have a lot of recent comments from him because it's not something that comes up a lot as governor. But when he was in Congress, um, he praised the Paul Ryan budget that proposed turning Medicare into basically a a subsidy for private insurance and also made some other comments uh, suggesting that Social Security is not off the table for balancing the budget. Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina, also presumed to be a major player for 2024 and uh, possibly former Vice President Mike Pence as well. Are they weighing in on cutting Social Security or Medicare? Yeah, so Haley, who we expect to announce next week, is another who made these comments at the time about needing to look at uh, Social Security and Medicare. That was right before she became governor of South Carolina. And Pence is, um, interestingly, really leaning into this. So as Trump is staking out this position of not a penny from Social Security or Medicare, which, by the way, is not really consistent with his own record as president when his White House budget proposals included cuts to some uh, Social Security and Medicare programs. But his vice president, Pence, is really leaning into this now and basically staking out a position of trying to bring back George Bush's proposal from 2015 about turning Social Security into private savings accounts. And uh, people will remember that that uh, really was the beginning of uh, of the tanking of, of George W. Bush's public approval. Really interesting note there, uh, because in the article, you even point out the, the political capital that he was willing to spend. You can find out much more about this and the, uh, the health of Social Security online at WashingtonPost.com from Isaac Arnstorf. And that's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Coming up next. Reducing the cost of insulin and limiting searches of private vehicles. What lawmakers are up to. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Lawmakers have been busy this week as they continue slogging through the lengthy legislative session. Obviously, they got to come up with a budget and many other things, but a number of issues are on the agenda. Insulin was one of them. We'll get to that in just a few moments, but searching cars and we're not talking about police searches this is an issue that lawmakers have been dealing with over the last several weeks and joining me now to break it all down is northwest news radio's ryan harris and so what exactly are we talking about here because we know there's been all sorts of concern about what police can and cannot do but in this case we're talking about employers absolutely and when it comes to police searches especially police searches of vehicles That's something that's not only essentially set by the United States Constitution, but many years of of federal and Supreme Court precedent. What we're talking about here is when you're at your job and your car, your private vehicle, is parked on company property. Now, sometimes it's a secured location. Sometimes it's just an open parking lot on the property. Sometimes it's a garage. Whatever the situation might be, Frequently, when you go on to work sites, you'll see signs that not only that say, you know, park here at your own risk and nobody else is responsible but you for your car and belongings, but also sometimes that your vehicles might be subject to search for security reasons. So that's why lawmakers put together House Bill 1491. This one is sponsored by a Republican, Representative Ed Orcutt of Kalama. And the idea is to prohibit employers from searching your private vehicle on company property 
unless they have probable cause to believe there is an immediate threat to worker safety. Now, the people who were speaking out in favor of this bill, most of them were members of the Association of Western Pulp and Paper Workers Unions, the people who worked the mills, most of them in southwest Washington. And they all shared stories about items that were found in their cars during searches that were otherwise legally obtained items, but happened to be on the prohibited list. Uh, One of them, a uh, paper worker by the name of Justin Welty, says he just went out on a weekend fishing trip, uh, Fourth of July weekend with his dad. And when he came back, he had had a 12-pack of beer that they didn't drink while they were on the trip. It was just left in the back seat of his car. I was going about my business, and then somebody called me over the radio. Hey, there's four security guards around your truck. They asked to initiate a search. I ended up being written up for having a prohibited item, but they're unopened beer sitting in the back seat that I just forgot about. And, you know, they say a lot of these guys are fishermen because most of them live down by the Columbia River. Another told a story of having his fishing tackle box, locked box, in the car with a fillet knife. Now, that's something that's common when you go fishing. If you want to, you know, do the the cleaning of the fish while you're there or whatever the reason may be. And uh, the security searched his car, found the knife, said the blade was too long, so it fell under prohibited items. Another one, a fellow by the name of Bill Sauters, a pulp and paper workers union member, Same mill he worked at for 20 years. His stepfather worked for 40 years. Now, Sauter says his mother and his stepdad lived in kind of a remote area near Mount St. Helens. And when you live that way, the grocery store is not right down the street. So you have to plan a trip to the store. And he says his mom would send his stepdad with a grocery list. And in one instance, the list included a bottle of wine. As soon as he got to work, he says there were security guards waiting there, ready to do a random search. Well, once they found that bottle of wine, he was reprimanded. He was a 40-year employee, had a perfect record. He'd never had a problem. Now it was, if you make one more mistake, you're going to lose your job. You know, and that's that's big. That's It's scary. So these guys are getting popped on their workplace for having things, again, that are, you know, otherwise okay to have. One of the other speakers was the local pulp and paper mill union president, Russ Hypock, who says... You know, there's always those signs, like I mentioned, when you park, and you are essentially responsible for any legal items inside your vehicle. I can legally obtain it. I have it. And that's what it's about. People are getting written up. People are getting terminated. So basically, the idea is, you know, for this bill is to make sure that people who have legally obtained items don't put their jobs at risk just because they happen to have them in their car, even though they're never going to leave the car the entire time they're at work. No one was there to testify in opposition to this bill, but there was a representative there from the Department of Labor and Industries because they would have to create all the rules and set up the infrastructure if somebody were to file a complaint about one of these searches. LNI says there are a couple of items missing from this bill, like no protection from retaliation for workers who file a complaint. The other thing it's missing is a definition for probable cause. 
And the LNI representative made it very clear they're not law enforcement. Probable cause is something with which they have no experience. So I would suspect that this bill will see some technical cleanups, but I think there's a good possibility that it, because it appears bipartisan with little opposition, that it'll probably pass out of committee. So this is preventing employers from searching your vehicle when you come onto their property. I guess the obvious question I would have here is what about sensitive places? For example, Hanford, the nuclear site in southeast Washington. Granted, that is on federal land, but you have other sensitive facilities where security is a big concern. Absolutely. There are some limited exemptions when it comes to sensitive installations. Military and other federal installations are also exempt. If you go on a military base, you're getting searched in this law cannot preempt that the one other thing specified in the bill is department of corrections facilities because they certainly don't want anybody bringing weapons or contraband onto a doc prison site so those items are exempted but uh you know private employers across the state it would be all bets are off for them so what's the likelihood of this passing i think it has a pretty good shot of getting out of committee again with some technical fixes we'll see some amendments and that's part of the process as they work through to the votes on this bill but it's sponsored by a Republican. It has no opposition, and it seems like it has at least some empathetic support from Democrats on the committee. So I suspect it will probably pass with the little or no objection. And then the other topic we wanted to talk to you about, the state legislature working on an issue that the president mentioned in his State of the Union address this past week, and that is the cost of insulin. Absolutely. And in this particular case, the president was talking about the Medicare program which for seniors and others on Medicare caps the cost of insulin at $35 a month. This is a little different. The idea behind this bill is to make insulin less expensive, no set price for diabetics under the age of 21. For a lot of families, according to supporters of this bill, you know they face not only the high expense, but sometimes uh, they have to choose between uh, whether they're going to eat or provide insulin for their child. When you're talking about somebody who's 18 or 19 and maybe they've gone off to college and they're working and paying their own way or they're you know starting out on their own, maybe at a minimum wage job, they can't be saddled with that. In fact, one study I was looking at showed that you know for a, a lot of families with children that are on insulin, after they pay their food and their housing costs for the month, up to 40% of what's left ends up going toward the cost of the insulin. So it's a really expensive prospect. And what the bill intends to do is the same thing the state does with Narcan, the opioid overdose reversal drug. They buy it in bulk so that they can get it for a lower price. So this bill would authorize the state health care authority to do that, uh, to buy insulin in bulk and then contract with distributors, providers, health plans, and so on that would want to participate in it in order to provide insulin to families and young adults for a lot less than it is now. So what kind of cost savings would we be looking at here? You know, there were no specific numbers, but, you know, if you think about it, if you buy it in bulk at the at the very least, they probably get 10, 20, 30% off the price. You know, one of the cases made against the high cost of insulin is that it doesn't really cost that much to produce. 
So, you know, it's the it's a big profit margin. And the people who are for it say, well, you know, it's the big pharma trying to not necessarily gouge, but certainly try to reap as much profit from what is essentially, uh, not essentially, it is a life-sustaining drug that you're talking about. People who are diabetic cannot live without their insulin. There wasn't really anybody in opposition to this bill, but there was some testimony, you know, sometimes people sign in as other, not pro nor con, and one of them was Kate White Tudor with the Washington Association for Community Health, who suggested a pretty drastic change to this bill. To make insulin free and available to children under 21 and figure out what the potential cost to the state might be for making that available. So giving things away for free, I can't imagine Republicans are liking that. Well, I suspect that if they attempt that, that Republicans will vote against it, although a Republican is also the prime sponsor on this bill. So in its present form, probably with some, uh, you know, some amendments along the way, uh, it is likely to pass with some pretty strong support. When you start talking about, you know, getting the state to foot the entire bill for every young diabetic in the state, that would be a pretty sizable expense. And I don't see Republicans getting on board with that. But I think everybody at least has a little bit of support for lowering what is a really high cost for our medications. All right. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem. Thanks, man. Still to come. More documents were found at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. We'll get the latest on DocuGates. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podzola. Well, DocuGate continues, and the latest person to get wrapped up in all of this, former Vice President Mike Pence, of course, in the past, they had found documents at his home, but now the FBI has searched his home once again and found additional documents as they're looking into uh, what's going on with all of these classified files that are being found in former presidents and former vice presidents homes joining me now is abc's andy field from washington dc and uh, let's start with the latest what's going on at mike pence's home well this is interesting imagine you went on uh, a fishing trip with your buddy you spend five hours out there and you're throwing a bait out there and nothing's coming back and you come home with one tiny little fish well that's exactly what happened with the fbi at mike pence's house they did a uh, five-hour search of the former vice president's Indiana home. Uh, They recovered one document with classified markings and six additional pages without any markings, according to uh, the former vice president's spokesperson. The VP and the lawyers gave the FBI unrestricted access to the home. Pence and his family were not home when this happened here. Uh, So, so far, they haven't gotten a lot from the Pence house, and it appears just as it appears, and again, I'm saying appears because I don't know what the documents are, that in both cases of Mr. Biden and Mr. Pence, that some papers got mixed in with other papers, that there was some sloppy record keeping, that uh, no one was really looking at these things. They just threw them in boxes and brought them to the homes without saying, gee, this is a classified document that shouldn't be here, which varies far from what President Trump did, where He has publicly admitted that, A, yes, he took those documents. B, they belong to him, not the federal government. And at one point, I think he even said he declassified them with his mind and that there's nothing wrong with what he did. Well, the Presidential Records Act says otherwise, but he also resisted giving the papers back to the National Archives. So his case is significantly different than Vice President Pence and uh, President Biden in that both of those men cooperated, opened the door, said, come on in, look around, whatever you 
whatever shouldn't be here, take it because we know it shouldn't be here. So very different cases. So aside from the classified documents, even if you had unclassified files, doesn't the National Archives have, don't they own them? I mean, any like you say, the Presidential Records Act, classified or not, they shouldn't be at the private homes of former constitutional officers. You are correct about that. That is absolutely correct. And that's why the FBI has taken additional documents that perhaps should not have been there. Although, again, I don't know what those documents are. We'll probably find out when this whole investigation's over. But As you well know, and we've seen from many, many investigations in the past, none of these things take a short period of time. Sometimes they take months, sometimes they take years, and sometimes they veer off into all kinds of other things. You remember former President Clinton, Whitewater, I think, was a a development deal in Arkansas. That was what the special prosecutor was there for. They weren't coming up with a whole lot of anything on that. And that somehow morphed into the Monica Lewinsky case. So Sometimes these special prosecutors and special counsels looking at one thing and they find something completely different. So with regards to the current president, Joe Biden, where does the investigation stand there? Because he's embroiled in all of this from his time as VP under President Obama. We don't have a whole lot more information other than the the documents were found at a former office at his home in Wilmington and also his home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. But again, I mean, I'm not sure if they did. Did they find documents in his home in Rehoboth? I don't think they did. You'll have to forgive me. I don't remember. There's so many documents being found. I don't recall who was finding what where. But I do know that there were documents uh, found at his home in Wilmington that his Rehoboth beach house was searched. I don't think they found anything there. Uh, And there's not any more homes for President Biden to search. Now, with uh, uh, former President Trump, they've only searched Mar-a-Lago, and he has significantly more homes than both Mike Pence and President Biden. And as far as we know, those have not been searched by the FBI. So in, in the hypothetical that charges are brought, what would happen there? Are we Is this a criminal case? Is this a civil case? Could the former presidents and vice presidents end up spending time in jail for taking these documents, classified or not, that belong to the National Archives? Well, it, it, a lot of questions that we've never actually had a face as a nation before because no presidents or vice presidents have faced this type of, of scrutiny for these things. We don't know what crimes, if any, they committed. Uh, If it was inadvertently taking these papers, it's unlikely they'll be prosecuted and punished in any serious sort of way. Uh, If it's obstruction of justice, which I think that's part of the investigation into President Trump, that could uh, possibly involve a significant fine or jail time. Uh, Did he take documents? And is there a way to prove that those documents were passed to foreign entities? That would be a very serious crime. But again, we don't know any of that information, and we're not going to know until the prosecutors and the special counsels finish doing their work. So where is Merrick Garland, the attorney general, in all of this? Well, he's been consistent and consistently quiet on most of it, other than to say no person's above the law, and they will follow each case where the facts lead them. But he's not directly overseeing the investigations here because as a member of the Biden administration, wouldn't that be a conflict of interest? Well, it, it could certainly be perceived that way. But uh, as he said over in an abundance of caution and with guidelines in the Justice Department, this is why he has appointed special counsels to these things. So he's hands off of it. 
And these are independent folks who will make these decisions on their own, then make their recommendations to Merrick Garland. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you, Jeff. Coming up next. The race for 2024 is already taking shape and the local economic effects of the Super Bowl. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, it's 2023, early 2023, that is, but it's never too early to start talking about the next presidential election. In fact, the Republican field to challenge President Joe Biden has already started to take shape. We know that former President Donald Trump is running again. There's also talk about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And to talk about all of this, we're, talk, we're joined now by Daniel Lippman. He is the White House and Washington reporter for Politico. And I, I guess first off, uh, let's start with the one elephant in the room, and that would be Donald Trump. He's still leading the pack for the Republican field, isn't he? He is, although he has declined precipitously in the last few years since he was in office. A lot of Republicans think he is kind of over the hill, that they want a fresh face to represent their party. Uh, that he doesn't have a compelling message to carry the party into the future and that he's more focused on grievance politics and on, you know, justifying how he thinks he still won the 2020 election. Well, grievance politics certainly worked for him in 2016. Is he sort of running that same playbook around this time? Yeah, he is, but it's not with a lot of new ideas. And so a lot of people in his party are saying, hey, we should make room for the next generation and that if he, if he was the nominee against Joe Biden, that he would lose again. And so they are not interested in giving him the space to do that. Uh, but he still has that core of 30% of the Republican Party that is uh, ride or die with him. Some of the other names that we mentioned off the top, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's certainly a rising star within the Republican Party. He is. He is seen as a very good candidate uh, and he is someone that has implemented his conservative ideas, especially with the pandemic uh, and keeping Florida not locked down, which uh, helped the economy of Florida. Uh, and so he's seen as using those culture issues. Remember his fight against Disney to great advantage uh, for his uh, for his brand and for the party. Uh, and so, you know, I think the issue he faces is that he is not as personable as some of the other politicians in the mix. And so he doesn't always make eye contact. He doesn't like to glad hand as much. And so that might drag him in a place like Iowa, New Hampshire, where personal contact is still very important. But he does have that growing base, a lot of it coming from Trump's wing of the Republican Party. Uh, he plays into the grievance politics as well, doing a lot of the, the social issues, as you mentioned. He had the uh, quote-unquote don't-say-gay bill that people criticized quite a lot. Uh, he's also pushing for restrictions on teaching of in inclusion courses as, as well as critical race theory, all of these things that Republicans just pick as these wedge issues over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's kind of the like that the Republican Party is almost becoming the Democratic Party is and focusing on identity politics. And so both parties steal from each other. And now the Republicans are kind of the anti-identity politics. But to do that, they are focusing on appealing to their white base, aging seniors, often people in the middle age, uh, and also, you know, working class folks who feel left behind in our country uh, and feel like Democrats are kind of uh, obsessed with cultivating their voters who are more 
people living in cities and young people who are concerned about climate change and transgender issues, uh, but not as much about the the workers in the Rust Belt. What about Nikki Haley? So she is a very talented politician. She's had a quick rise over her political career, uh, governor of South Carolina, then ambassador to the UN under the Trump administration. Uh, and she kept her reputation. She was not seen as kowtowing to Trump. And she had a good exit. She wasn't fired on the way out. She re- had her resignation ceremony uh, in the Oval Office where Trump was praising her. Uh, but she still keeps those moderates in the Republican Party interested in her message. But she's still untested on the national stage in terms of uh, a presidential campaign. And she doesn't have a clear base of people who are, you know, if you look at the polls, there's not a huge portion of people who are saying, hey, I want Nikki Haley. There's a lot of people also talking about former Vice President Mike Pence, but uh, at least from the outside, I can't see that there's any path to victory for him because he's very conservative on social issues and like to the point where a lot of the Republican Party doesn't necessarily agree with what he says and does. Plus, he's alienated that Trump wing of the Republican Party over January 6th. Yeah, he's kind of stuck in a situation where he is a man without a party or without even a base in the party. And so he still has some of those Christian conservatives who really like what he stood for and value his religious devotion. But he is not someone that he is uh, is seen as very charismatic either. And so remember all those images of him just standing behind Trump uh, in all those speeches and, you know, nodding and, and applauding Uh, And not being his own man, but instead kind of being a a cutout of someone who was Trump's loyalist until he wasn't. Any dark horses in the race so far? And what I think is interesting is that very few people have actually announced for president. And so Nikki Haley is seen as uh, announcing in the next couple of weeks. We see Trump in the race, but he hasn't actually done many campaign events. Until he did one event in uh, New Hampshire, one event in South Carolina, uh, but has not been really hitting the campaign trail very much. And these were these were pretty small events, and so not those huge rallies that we're used to. And so people are are trying to kind of cool their jets a little bit. Uh, It's a very campaigns are very expensive to run, uh, and so they'll have to raise tons of money. uh, And the Republican Party wants to have a smaller field than normal because uh, in 2016 the fact that there were so many candidates made it hard to coalesce around one anti-trump candidate on the democratic side do we know for sure president biden's going to be running for re-election well he hasn't declared that he is and so uh, he did not want the uh, state of the union address to be all about his second campaign so we're still waiting for a few weeks or a month or two uh, for him to formally enter the race any other democrats thinking they might challenge him or or go for it not if they want a future in a biden washington and so people like mayor pete uh, now at the Department of Transportation, they are waiting uh, until there's a new opportunity to enter the race. But they see that it's very hard to defeat a sitting president uh, unless you have a very wounded political candidate. And right now, Biden is riding on the success of a not as bad midterms and also all those bills he got accomplished last year but he also has some vulnerability with the document scandal the withdrawal from afghanistan and more yeah and plus his age and so but it's just those are not enough 
to lead Democrats to bail on him just yet. All right, Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally this week, some thoughts on the big game. While the Seahawks are not involved, many Seattle-area restaurants and bars are holding Super Bowl parties. Northwest News Radio's Bill Swartz reports Washington State's hospitality industry hopes it's the start of better days ahead. to root for the Eagles or Chiefs to love a good party with Tasty Grown. I love ordering the platter and sitting down and just enjoying the games. And we got some Northwest people on the Super Bowl. Anthony Antone is CEO of the Washington Hospitality Association, representing thousands of lodging, food, and beverage businesses in the state. COVID took away in-person Super Bowl parties and more, hitting the industry hard for two-plus years. But state employment figures show the leisure and hospitality sector added 31,200 jobs last fall. Antone is encouraged. Why we gained so much the next, last quarter is our hole was so deep. Um, and so we're still rough about 12% down uh, to get completely out of the hole, but that's a lot better than 35% down. Antone says neighborhood bars and restaurants are attracting more customers, but large city downtown establishments are still suffering from fewer office workers and shoppers. What is the new normal for some of these urban areas who got built around one traffic pattern? Will that traffic pattern return or is it going to be more of a permanent change? And I think we're all keeping our eye on what's the new reality. What gives Antone and the hospitality industry optimism is the new Summit expansion at the State Convention Center and big sports events on the 2023 Seattle calendar. So now's the time to fill those job openings. Uh, We still have a lot of workers to find and hire, and even when we find and hire them, train them and get them excited to see you and understand the menu and understand um, what how when guests come into the hotel, where to recommend to go see and and how to really enjoy the great Northwest. Packed Super Bowl parties this Sunday, perhaps the sign of better days ahead. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.